0: This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC.
1: Two brothers who rescue birds, a man who takes on Vladimir Putin And a couple that chases volcanoes are only some of the subjects of
2: this year's Oscar nominees for documentary feature. From Ukraine to India, Russia to New York City, these films will take you places you couldn't go otherwise. And you can stream them all from home. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Linda Holmes. On this episode of
1: NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we've got a guide to this year's Oscar nominees for documentary
0: feature film. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Be My Guest, with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. This message
1: comes from NPR sponsor, Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. It's just the two of us today. Let's dive right in and talk about our first film, First up is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's directed by Laura Poitras. It's about the photographer and activist Nan Golden. She spent decades in New York's art scene and has devoted her recent years to persuading arts institutions to distance themselves from the Sackler family over its role in the opioid epidemic. You can watch this one on HBO Max and HBO starting
2: on March 19th. Aisha, what did you think of this? This was by far my favorite of the bunch. You know, I was familiar with Nan Goldin, and I was also very familiar with this sort of battle with the Sackler family. But I am ashamed that I didn't really know that much about Nan Goldin. And so what I loved about this movie is the fact that it's kind of a wayward film that you don't quite know where it's going until, you know, I would say maybe an hour into the film, where it's kind of going back and forth between the present day and her fights to have the Sackler family's names and donations removed from all these various institutions and for them to acknowledge all of the pain and uh, deaths that their company has caused. Um, And then on top of that, we learn about her career and her life and some very painful things about her family history and how all of that converges and really influenced the fight that she's been taking on today. It's both a very sort of one of those documentaries that is both very outward and big picture, but also very, very personal. And I loved the way this film tussles with both of those things.
1: Yeah, I think I had the same reaction. I really liked how in some ways unstructured it was in the sense that you start off with a glimpse at her current activism, and the more you dive into her past in art and her past in activism, it draws this really interesting connection between art and kind of social justice activities, especially in the area of health, because of course she lived in the Bowery in the 80s. She lived in New York City, knew tons and tons of queer people. So she was deeply involved in the AIDS activism that was going on at that time. And I think it makes an interesting point about how there's always been this community of people who use art to protest specifically in this area of health and health care and I think it makes an interesting point but it doesn't kind of make it in an overbearing way. I think it kind of lets that point come to the surface and it really does remain a biography of her that just kind of comes to the end and you come to understand why this is what she's doing now rather than it focusing entirely on the story of the of the Sacklers and her her battles on that front. But yeah, I liked this one too. Um, And again, that's going to be on HBO and HBO Max starting March 19th. It's all the beauty and the bloodshed. Next up, we have Navalny... It's directed by Daniel Rohr, who embeds with Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny as he undertakes an investigation to prove that his own government was responsible for poisoning him. This one is streaming on HBO Max now. Aisha, this is probably one of the stories that people are most likely to be familiar with
2: already. Um, how did you feel about Navalny? Uh, well, I was vaguely familiar with it, and I think it was the documentary I was like, least excited to see (laughs) Um, just because I understand why it would get the nomination just from without even having seen it because it's such a timely, in many ways, a timely story to tell but um, at the end of the day I enjoyed it or as much as you can enjoy a story like this it's not it's not a pleasant film but I think that the crowning moment for me is the one that a lot of people have talked about which is a scene that was actually very much condensed for the film it's not it was much longer than it plays out in the film I think in the film it plays out over about five or six minutes but it's a scene where Navalny places phone calls to some of the men he, he suspects of having poisoned him and Navalny is posing not as himself, um, but that person takes the bait and then just unloads and basically says, "Yes, this was what was happening. This is, is this is how we did it." Um, let's actually listen to a short clip of that moment. Yes, he Christ. spilled the whole story. The whole story. Yeah. This is unbelievable. Poor, poor guy. Poor guy. They will kill him. will literally. It's just like a gotcha moment that works both in a dramatic narrative sense, but also in the larger sense of this is actual real life and this is actually playing out. And I think it's just like a really fascinating look at the way that this again this is another story about activism on a perhaps even sort of larger scale and more personal scale and i think it was it's really it's really interesting and i i have a sense that this could be the one that wins um but i don't know what do you think linda i you know i enjoyed this film
1: it felt the most similar to a lot of other kind of current events documentaries that I've seen, which is not necessarily to say anything negative about it. It's just this is probably the one where I felt like the directing and things like structure, it's fairly linear. I did appreciate the fact that I think they tried not to make it strictly a rah-rah about Navalny film. They do kind of get into Some of the alliances that he has made with people who he says he doesn't agree with about lots of things, but he agreed in terms of being, you know, anti the government. Mm -hmm. And I think they do a good job of kind of having him explain those things. And then you kind of decide what you think about that fact. But I liked the fact that they, I think they tried to disclose some of that stuff. Do I think it will win? Oh, gosh, I don't know. But I agree with you that I would never bet against a film like this. I think people are always drawn to to films about political tensions and particularly people they perceive to be fighting, you
2: know, great powers. Especially since filming this documentary, he's been back in prison. So that right. gives it a sense of urgency as well, I think.
1: Yeah, I think people always like a story where they feel like the story could still shift and change. So that's Navalny, uh, again, currently streaming on HBO Max. Next up, we have A House Made of Splinters. A House Made of Splinters tells the story of several children who are passing through a kind of temporary shelter in Ukraine. They've been removed from their parents' custody, mostly because of drinking. It's directed by uh, Simon Larang Wilmont and available for rent on demand. It will also be released in select Alamo Drafthouse theaters, starting this month. So this, I think a lot of people wondered whether there would be a documentary about Ukraine this year. And I was interested in the fact that this is maybe not the documentary about Ukraine that
2: people would have expected. How did you feel about this? I'm actually kind of glad that it is. It it just felt like a very different take on Ukraine and also just society. I feel as though this is a story that while it is set in Ukraine, it is something that I think resonates across every culture. And I was very, very moved by this. I was not expecting to be so moved by it. But the kids that they are following are just so in many ways, clear eyed and Also, they're still kids, and there's a moment where two people who have become friends in this shelter are hugging goodbye because one of them is leaving for their foster family, and it's just so heartbreaking because they're like, I don't know if I'm going to see you again, and like, we've been in this together. And there's just this um, sense of hopelessness, but also hope because some of these kids do wind up going to foster families and and hopefully having better lives and when there are moments when they are very excited to be leaving and going with someone they want to go with whether it's you know their grandma or another person who's taking them in it's really touching and at one point one of the people who's running the shelter is just like hope dies last and i'm like ah oh, yes yeah <laughs> like, it's just so yeah. beautiful in a way
1: I agree with you i think a lot of this resonates for any system that is trying to figure out what to do when kids can't be safely cared for by their parents at a particular moment, right? Maybe not forever, but in a particular moment. And I did think that the relationships between the kids are really nicely highlighted. And I think the director really knows how to just sit with kids and not interrupt, particularly with these two young girls. There are these long takes where It kind of feels like nothing's happening, but then all of a sudden it feels like a lot is happening and their friendship is very unusual and textured. And you really feel like you're getting to know this deeply personal relationship between these girls. And in terms of it being set in Ukraine, you know, one of the things that I think is impressive about this film, which was shot over like a couple of years. So this is not entirely a film made during the current stage of the conflict that they're in. But I think one of the things that it stresses is that when you are dealing with some kind of international conflict or anything like that or a war, you also still have all the regular problems. And that's one of the things that I think is fascinating about a film like this. You know, They talk about war making this kind of situation worse for families and more difficult to figure out what to do about the kids. But it doesn't flow directly from that. But you remember – People who are dealing with war are also dealing with all kinds of other stuff. Nothing stops, right? And so I did. I really, really liked this. And, and like you said, I think I was more touched by this than maybe I expected to be. It has a lighter hand than a lot of documentaries that are, are made in times and places of conflict. So that is a house made of splinters. It is available uh, for rent on demand and it's going to come out in some alamo draft house theaters, so keep an eye out for that the fourth on our list is fire of love fire of love recounts the careers of married couple katya and maurice Kraft, scientists who studied volcanoes from as close as they dared to get and who eventually died in the course of their work it's directed by Sarah Dosa and is streaming on Disney Plus and Hulu. We got a little bit all over the place yeah. with these uh, <laughs> these films, Disney Plus and Hulu. Aisha, I feel like Fire of Love is the one of these that I heard about first. Mm. What did you feel about Fire of Love?
2: Um, So I enjoyed it. I had never heard of The Crafts. Yeah, no, me neither. This was completely new to me. So... I was coming into this completely cold. This serves an itch that we often see in the nominees of documentaries in the Oscar category of like a subject about a weird, quirky obsession. So obviously there was My Octopus Teacher a few years ago, or a couple years ago, Free Solo, Honeyland, like those have been nominated or won the award. And this fills that niche. And- I think those tend to be sort of my least favorite kinds of documentaries, because if you're not already interested in those subjects, you have to be convinced to be like, this is something I want to spend like an hour and a half to two hours learning about someone right. else being really into this thing. Right. And I will say that I went through a lot of this film wondering how much of it was actually real footage and how much of it wasn't. And it seems like all of it is real footage. It's just a weird movie because it's 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 shot in this again quirky sort of uh, retro. Lens where everything's very bright and colorful, and, and and obviously this footage is from you know decades ago, sixties and seventies, so it makes sense. But at the same time, the way they were staged, the, the the crafts and what they were doing, I was like, wait, is this actually them or is this a recreation? And are we playing with this idea of documentary? But according to the director, you know, these were subjects who were very aware of what they were doing and wanted to chronicle their work, and so they had. Hours and hours and hours of footage of themselves doing all of this. So I think once I learned that, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And it is beautiful. Like, there are moments uh, where you see the lava, and the lava just looks so stunning. Overall, I enjoyed it, but I'm not sure it's... (sighs) I don't know. There's something about it that kept me at a little bit of a remove.
1: Yeah. <laughs> How about you? I agree with you. You know, you mentioned my octopus teacher, and I will say I think my octopus teacher had a, a kind of a weird pretentiousness that I don't think this quite has no, no. Um, in the same way. But I do think it has one thing in common with that, which is in My Octopus Teacher, I just wanted to watch the octopus. I thought that was the interesting part. Mm -hmm. I thought that the footage of the octopus was always great. And I think in this, as you mentioned, there is a ton that I haven't seen before, footage of volcanoes and lava and how lava behaves. And there are some really wonderful sequences where the lava shoots up and kind of splats onto the ground. And it's fascinating to kind of look at how kind of how lava works. Mm. And I very much enjoyed those parts. I think the effort to kind of layer the story of the marriage on top of the just beautiful footage of lava and volcanoes is a little less successful, simply because they were a married couple. They seemed to have had a happy marriage and supported each other. They were both very interested in volcanoes. They worked very hard to be as safe as they could. They weren't sort of daredevils, but they accepted the risks of what might eventually happen. It did eventually happen. People seem to think, you know, they did a lot of valuable work, but it's risky. And I think the film struggles a little bit to find a story that sustains a film for that long. And I agree with you about how it keeps you at a little bit of a remove. There's a very intentionally kind of dry sort of flat narration from Miranda July, actually. How do they show how to gaze into the abyss?
2: Perhaps like this. They I agree that the, the narration was a little bit kind of... Uh, there's a moment where it's like, they're here for the volcano, who is indifferent to their adulation. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's, like, it's, a, it's a little it's a, cheesy. It's a little... <laughs> yeah.
1: It's, it's a little effortful when it comes to trying to anthropomorphize the story of the volcano and the lava. But if you're interested in lava, it's a great bunch of film of lava. Yeah. So that is Fire of Love. It's streaming on Disney Plus and Hulu. Finally... Speaking of of obsessions, Mm -hmm. we have All That Breathes. All That Breathes is about two brothers in New Delhi who are trying to save the black kite, a scavenging bird increasingly threatened by an environment that's more and more inhospitable. It's directed by Sean Aksen, and it's streaming on HBO Max. Aisha, what did you think about the bird movie?
2: Another movie that I was kind of surprised by and also was at first – you know, I had heard a little bit about it um, because uh, one of our good friends of the show, Badatari D. Chowdhury, had actually mentioned it in one, an episode about movies we missed from the previous years. And so I was already familiar with it. But when I went into it, I just kind of had to let it fall over me. And once I realized, oh, this is about not just these brothers and their obsession, but this obsession is actually about them trying to survive and and hopefully help make their environment and their climate a little bit better. And I learned a lot, too. You know, it it was interesting. They talk about how the air pollution has become such a huge issue and also just the fact that there are just so many people that like all of nature that was there before the industrialization of the city has had to adjust to that. And so the little tidbit that the birds are using cigarette butts as parasite repellent what? <laughs> like, right. First of all, that's just a really cool tidbit, but also it's very sad. But the point that they're making in the documentary is that they adapt and we have to adapt too. But the idea is that we need to adapt and hopefully adapt for the better. And I think that this film does a really good job of letting the sort of environmental aspect of it kind of creep up on you. And then it's it's never too heavy handed, but it's always present and there and you are aware it is there. And then you also you care about these brothers and you care about their fight for this because they realize it's not just about the bird. It's about everyone and how all of us are tied to those birds. Right. It's a very kind of quixotic quest that they are on
1: to save this bird that is this is not like a beautiful majestic bird in their community this is a scavenging bird in their community it eats garbage it swoops down and hits people. (laughs) And so people tend to get very irritated by this bird because it'll swoop down and knock you in the head or as happens at one point, steal your glasses. So people don't love this bird, but these guys are able to recognize that the bird plays an incredibly important role in the way that the city works and the way that the community works, partly because it eats garbage. There's one point where they talk about the fact that You know, if you have thousands and thousands of these kites and they each eat X amount a day, they are actually consuming a ton of what would otherwise be just landfill stuff. So they talk about the importance of it and they talk about preserving all the kind of links in the chain. And I think one of the things I liked about it is that a lot of times animal documentaries do kind of go either for a glamorous, beautiful animal Or a kind of classically interesting animal, like an octopus. Mm. Or they go for extreme, you know, micro (laughs) animals. We got to try to save this tiny snail or something like that. This is a nice kind of in-between animals that are considered sort of pests by a lot of people. These guys have this really intense desire to save this bird. And you sort of see as the film goes on, for them, this is partly that Sisyphus feeling of trying to push back on an individual level against environmental catastrophe. And you see the toll that that takes on them, that feeling that nothing that they can ever do is going to be enough. So it is a very sad story, but also you see them rehabilitate a lot of birds. Mm. And so it is sort of both a story of individual kindness and a story of almost societal collapse in some ways. And That attention, I think, works really well in a documentary. So I really liked this one, too. Um, It's interesting looking back on them. I don't think there are any here that I didn't like watching that I kind of looked at and thought, like, oh, I can't wait until this is over. But I am going to go with A House Made of Splinters. I think that's what will win. I'm just going to guess that that's what will win. And I think my personal favorite... Ooh, it's right between that one and All
2: the Beauty and the Bloodshed. I know. Yeah, I, I agree. Despite my despite my reservations about, especially N- Navalny and Fire of Love, I do think that these are all worth checking out. And they all have some really great moments. Um, but if I had to put my money on what I want to win, it's probably All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. But I feel like Navalny is probably, I don't know. But but people love kids, too. So maybe House of Splinter. Interesting. Um, well, we want to know what you think about this year's
1: Oscar-nominated documentary films. Most of them are already streaming. All of them will be streaming before long. Find us at facebook.com slash pchh. That brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Aisha. Thank you, Linda. It was a pleasure. This episode was produced by Candace Lim and Mike Katziff and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives, like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.
1: Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric
0: study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what?